You're welcome to turn with me uh, to the book of Joshua. We are in chapter 2 of the book of Joshua. We're continuing to journey with the Israelites as they've been freed from slavery in Egypt to walk in the freedom that is promised them in the land. See, God has commanded the Israelites to go and conquer the land of Canaan. And he promises to go before them, to fight for them. So today we're going to follow two spies who were sent three days ahead of the Jordan's crossing. As we go into Joshua, the book of Joshua, we see transitions unfolding. We have Moses to Joshua now. We have wilderness to land. We have death to resurrection. See, God's people are to hide themselves in Joshua, their leader. And they're to follow his lead. There's encouragement in Joshua's story for us today that God will lead, that God will provide for his people. There's encouragement that the nations indeed who continue in rebellion against God will be judged. And yet the nations will also be blessed through his Messiah and through his body. We today are the people who follow the lead of another Joshua whose name is Jesus, which is also the word Joshua. So we follow him this day and always, we're going to look at Joshua today to see how he points us to Jesus Christ. And to, in order for God to open our eyes, would you join me with a word of prayer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word, which is living and active. Draw near to us with your spirit, that our eyes might behold Christ more clearly in your scriptures, that our hearts might be softened to receive that which you have for us, and that we might be moved then to give glory and honor and praise to you all of our days. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So what was read for us is the story of Rahab hiding the spies. And it, it may be a familiar story to a lot of us. I want to start with, I want to take us to the end of that story, which happens in Joshua chapter 6, when Jericho is conquered and Rahab is saved. The last verses of that passage in 6 say, And they, the Israelites, they burned the city of Jericho with fire, everything in it. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved them alive. And she lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers. Rahab is maybe one of the least or the like, unlikeliest of, of heroines in all of Scripture here. But yeah, what we see in her story and the story of the Israelites in, in, uh, in the land of Canaan is that God is faithful to his promises. He is ever and always faithful he is just to judge, he is merciful to forgive, that he will call, himself, call to himself the nations, that he will provide for his people. These are the truths that we see in the life of Joshua as he leads God's people into freedom of the land. These are the truths that we see. But what led us up to this point in Joshua chapter 2? Well, if we were to look at Joshua chapter 1, we would see Joshua's stories opens up with a transition. His story opens up with the phrase, after the death of Moses. Moses has died. So we have what? His right-hand man, Joshua, his servant, the deacon of, of Moses, is now exalted as leader. And as God commanded Moses, so Joshua follows suit. Joshua is to meditate upon God's word. He is to lead in strength and courage. Chapter 1, it's be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. Be strong and courageous. He knows that God is with him and with his people. 
In Joshua 1, we see this leader, Joshua, preparing a people to cross over, to conquer a land long promised to them. Joshua, his name means Yahweh saves. God is our salvation, of which we just sang. So let's look at chapter 2, shall we? Verse 1. Joshua, the son of Nun, sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. God provides in some unexpected ways here. Earlier, Moses, you know, 40 years ago from here, Moses sent 12 spies in and only two came back with a good report. So maybe Joshua's like, well, 12 is way too many. Let's just send two. Maybe we'll have better luck this time. Maybe we'll listen to their report. So two spies go in and Joshua says, pay special attention to, to Jericho. So they go into the house of Rahab, a prostitute. And we shouldn't be overly alarmed by the fact that they're frequenting the house of a prostitute. The way that those houses functioned in that day is more of like a, a place of rest, a place of food. Think of it like, more like an inn uh, that has a pub with all the, the, the offerings there. It, it could be thought of more accurately like the Bible's version of the prancing pony. Maybe, maybe not. God provides in unexpected ways. Look at verse 2 and 3. It was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. The king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. As Israel was pursued in, in freedom from, from Egypt, right, they were pursued, the Egyptians pursued them. So now spies are being pursued by their Enemies. Verse 4 says the woman had taken in the men and hidden them. She said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. Verse 5, and when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them. See, God provides in unexpected ways. The first thing we see here is that it's the Gentiles, it's the nations who are protecting God's people here. Isn't that interesting? The, the people who are at odds with God, enemies with God, is also, they're also the people that will protect God's people. This is a theme that happens throughout Scripture. Here it's, it's Jerichoian Rahab who protects Israel. Moab became a refuge for Naomi and Ruth for a season. Joseph in Potiphar's house and even in prison. Paul avails himself to Rome and their protection in his day. Even Jesus is saved in some ways by the Romans. The nations. God uses the nations to protect his seed line. All things work together for the good who, of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. So that's the first thing. The nations are protecting God's seed. Willingly or unwillingly, they're doing it. Secondly, we see here, uh, we have the question of Rahab's lies or deceit, right? We wouldn't teach our children. We wouldn't come to this and say, here's how you should live your life every time, right? There's deceit going on. What's going on? Well, this deceit used by Rahab, it's in line with how God's people deal with tyrants, with God's enemies. God's people thwart the plans of tyrants by deceiving them. You'll notice throughout Scripture that, that Rahab is never condemned for this deceit. But rather, she's praised in Joshua 6 for hiding the spies, which is the deceit. Places her in the hall of faith, the scriptures do. And in Hebrews 11, they speak kindly of her. Validate her life and her faith. Though it may seem 
unusual or unexpected to us, God's people used deceit throughout Scripture to thwart the plans of tyranny and of evil. It's not the normative way that we function in life through lies and deceit, but against evil and against tyranny, God's people throughout the history of the Scriptures and now throughout the history of redemption, they use deceit like Rahab does here. So we have confidence that even in society, in a world bent on rebellion against God, He's sovereign over all things. He will use even enemies of him to protect and provide for his people. That his name will be magnified. His kingdom will be established. That God will provide. Let's skip down to verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. What you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. See, the nations will stream to God. That's what scriptures are replete with that truth. The nations will stream to the mountain of God. Rahab and her people have heard of Israel's God. They identify him as the God in the heavens above and the earth below. There is a, a confidence in her profession. It's that same confidence that she speaks. That, that, that confidence has been lacking in Israel's faith, in their walk. The Bible tells us that the nations will stream to the mountain of God. And here in the midst of judgment about to fall on the enemies of God, Rahab hears of God's mighty works, submits to his rule, his reign, seeks to come under his authority. Note throughout that section that I just read that Rahab attributes these mighty acts to Yahweh. I mean, parting the Red Sea, there's no doubt. No, nobody could do that. So certainly that's God. Military victories are attributed to strategy and strength. But at the end of her conclusion is, your God, he is the one who delivers. He is the one who fights on your behalf. None can stand before him. And so she moves on to ask them to seek him for help. Look at verse 12 and following. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from, from death. There's mercy here. There's victory here. A couple of things. Rahab, she's pleading for God's mercy that her father's house, that her family would be spared the wrath soon to befall Jericho. And the other Canaanites. She's sure that doom is falling upon them. And she asks the spies to plead on, their on her behalf and that of her family. What she's doing is she's seeking to hide herself in the people of God here. The people of Israel. As she's hidden the, the, the spies, now she seeks to hide herself in Joshua and company. And today we do likewise. Followers of Jesus, we pray for the world we hide ourselves in Christ. There is strong confidence here in God, isn't there? Rahab says that she knows Yahweh will win the day. The spies have no doubt either. Quite different than a generation ago, 40 years ago. There's little consideration of how or why it's happening this way, whether this is just or not. These are all valid considerations. There is, however, a childlike trust. There's none like God. 
that Jericho sits under the just wrath as God's enemies, that salvation is found only by attaching oneself to the people of God, accepting his rule, his way. And as the end of chapter 6 says, Rahab was saved and lived amongst God's people to that very day. To take us back to that 40 years ago, that earlier generation, they feared entrance into the land. See, they rejected not only God's word and his way, but they also rejected God's prophet, his leader. They sought to sever ties with God and with Moses, sought rather to unite themselves with Egypt once again, something familiar, even if it was enslavement. See, that's the picture of sin, Adam and Eve. Well, they sought to unite themselves to the way of the serpent, Cain, to the way of unchecked anger and wrath. Canaanites in the land unite themselves to false gods and false worship. The only refuge, the only hope is to unite oneself with God and his prophets. The Bible says that Joshua saved alive Rahab and the family. A people are spared only by uniting themselves with God's prophet and his people, whose prophet who is his conqueror. Rahab and family are saved by uniting themselves to God's people. Look at down in verse 17, goes on here. The men then respond, and they say to her, uh, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you have made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. You shall gather into your house your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's house. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of, the, of your house into the land, his blood shall be on his own head, but we shall be held guiltless. Scarlet cord is most likely a fabric belt from one of the spies there or in Rahab's place. It's to be a sign exterior. It's to be visible, to be seen outside Rahab's window. There's talk here of, of blood guilt on the heads of those who do not obey the command. Entire families are exhorted to take refuge behind closed doors as the angel or messengers of death come by. Doesn't it sound familiar? Doesn't it sound a lot like the Passover? There's imagery here that is of a, the Passover feast that God has given to his people. And here we have the same passing over, the same mercy, the same grace extended to the nations. This is a Gentile being exiled, freed from bondage to false gods and rebellion. And it requires faith. Faith like Rahab's requires corresponding action. So what does Rahab do? Verse 20. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And then she, Rahab, said, according to your word, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. It's one thing to believe. It's one thing to act on that belief, isn't it? Faith must lead to action. Not only does she believe that God is coming in his wrath to, just, to judge justly, but her actions respond or correspond to that faith. She seeks to hide herself in the people of God. You see, faith must lead to action. To confess love is indeed a good thing. But to work through conflict patiently, to bear hurts patiently, it's, it's quite another thing. To assent to the belief that God is sovereign in control, that's a good thing. That's one thing, but then to give a, your life to prayer to fight against worry, to share the gospel confidently, it's quite another thing. You could sum up each of Israel's rebellions in the wilderness as a lack of 
faith. They'd seen enough. They've known enough. They've even believed at times. And yet their life did not bear witness to what their intellect had known. Faith without works is dead. And this faith is not some substance that God magically gives when our faith tanks are running low. That's what it feels like sometimes. It's the activity of the heart lived out in time and space. There's no question that this is all of God's grace. Rahab never questions God's mercy and love to spare her. She could not, nor could the Israelites deserve or merit such mercy. God's command to Joshua is to saturate heart and soul with his word and then to walk in courage, to lead in strength, to walk by faith. And that faith moves him to faithful action. So our great task as the body of Christ is indeed to believe what God's word instructs us about him, about how we are to live in him, to shape our lives according to that word. Trusting God's mercy is for those outside the church as for those inside the church. This requires a pattern of dying in order to rise again. Again, as you see Israel's life, it's been a pattern of dying to rising. Forty years in the wilderness is a pattern of dying to rising, dying to rising. Moses now has died and Joshua is raised up. And as they go to conquer the land, the people will have to die in order to be raised up once again. Look at verse 22. So the spies departed and went into the hills, remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers uh, searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over, came to Joshua, son of Nun, and they told them all that had happened to them. We have imagery here again of life, death, and resurrection. Now you hear it here, this three-day theme, but throughout this passage, four or five different times, you've got three days, three days, three days. And of course, as followers of Jesus, our minds go to the resurrection, don't they? Joshua's ministry begins with his command. God commands him to rise and then to raise up people, to go into the land in three days. Here the spies remain in hiding for three days, and soon God's prophet and his people will rise up to walk as conquerors in God's grace. If you want to summarize Joshua's ministry of the lives of the people moving in the wilderness from prom- to the promised land, you could do little better than to say theirs is a life of death and resurrection. For 40 years in the wilderness, God broke down his people daily, practicing, rehearsing that of dying to self, rising anew in God's way. So at the border, Moses and a previous generation died, but now at that same border, a new generation rises up. Joshua's name means Yahweh or God saves. He is raised up from a dead generation to lead a newborn people into God's promise. It's the way God has always led his people, succession of leaders in covenant relationship with God from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, from Moses and to Joshua and to the judges and the people. Elijah gives way to Elisha. And finally, we have John the Baptist giving way to Jesus, who then, of course, rises, ascends, gives way to the Spirit and his church. Each of those successions that I mentioned here just now, Each of them requires death in order for a newness to rise, a new life to come about, a new, more glorious life. That's the image of Joshua as we turn the page from the first five books of the Bible to Joshua. It's the story of dying in order to rise again. The the spies were saved, but then they had to descend into the the womb of the enemies for three days in bondage, in hiding. 
And after three days they rise and report to Joshua, God who saves. Who raises his people after three days as God promised. So Jesus opens the way to death and resurrection after three days in the womb of the enemy and bondage. That we, his people, might enter into the joy of God's rest. Look at verse 24, how this ends. They said to Joshua, truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands. And also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. Truly, the Lord has given us. Truly, the Lord has done this. This is a profession of faith, a statement of faith, and we could do a little better. Every Sunday, as we did this morning, we profess our faith using the words of the Apostle Creed and other creeds or passages of Scripture. We confess or profess with our lips what we believe, what we seek to live out. And it can be summed up very well here. Truly the Lord has done this. Truly the Lord is this. So from this profession, they go out to conquer. From this profession, we go out to warn those who continue in rebellion against the Lord. This passage shows us anything. It is that God's wrath is swift and sure, that his judgment is just. As the Lord has torn down, he will tear down again in order to rebuild there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. We must align ourselves with God and his prophet and his people. Jesus Christ, the new Joshua, is the one who saves. Truly the Lord has done this. He will judge still. And as followers of the true and the final Joshua, who is Jesus Christ, we say truly the Lord has done this. When all is well, when family life is flourishing, when work is energizing, when community life is encouraging, we say, the Lord has done this. And when all seems broken, when the conflict is continuous, when sickness oppresses, when work is overwhelming, when finances fail, when our hearts are distant and cold, we confess that the Lord is yet in our midst, that he is mighty to save. He is gracious to sustain. We confess that the Lord has done this. See, the book of Joshua is difficult because God's wrath is being poured out upon the nations, those at enmity with God. But in the midst of that wrath and just judgment, we see his salvation being poured out for God's people and for those of the nations. We, the church, are not called to conquer lands in the same way that Joshua and his people are called to enter the land and conquer because Jesus, the new Joshua, has already conquered the land. All the earth is the Lord's, the fullness of it. In fact, Jesus looks down and says of every square inch of all of creation, he says, it is mine. We are called to a, a, a faith like Rahab's, a certainty that God will defeat his enemies. We too hide ourselves like Rahab in the people of God's Joshua, in the body of Christ, not because we are a people without fault or folly or failure, but because he has poured out his grace on his church, on his people. We are to enter the lives of those around us, bearing witness to God's work in the world, giving our lives to his service, fearing none, but trusting that God is with us and that in Christ God is for us. God provides in unexpected ways, which we cannot know, we cannot foresee. And so we walk by faith, step by step, entrusting ourselves to him. We go forth confident that Jesus, the true Joshua, is mighty to save. That he delights to deliver the least 
and the most unlikely to build his kingdom in our midst and throughout the world. Jesus, our Joshua, our conqueror, he goes before us. And our task is to hide ourselves in him as we walk by faith, lives professing truly God has done this and truly he will do it still. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're grateful for this word and we ask that we would look to Joshua, our true Joshua who is Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have conquered and that the war still rages on. We are resting firmly in the work that is finished and in Jesus' ongoing work on our behalf and on behalf of the world. Give us strength and courage by your spirit to live lives that bear witness to your might, to your power, to your goodness, to your grace, that others might see our lives and give glory to you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.